0: I'm uh, David, for those of you that don't know me, David Dever. Uh, My wife, Whitney, is back there uh, with the blue head man and the two uh, blonde-haired, shaggy-haired kids. Those are my kids, me and Zeke. And so I'm really excited this morning that we can come together as the body of Christ, that we can worship together through song. It has been so good for my soul this morning, through giving, uh, and now through the proclamation of the word. And so I'm going to take a moment uh, to pray for us. And if you feel like we pray a lot on Sunday mornings, we do. (laughs) And that is because we believe in the power of prayer. One of our values here at Salt Light Church is that we are a prayerful people. And so I'm gonna pray for us here uh, before I even get started. Uh, Father God, we just thank you this morning for your gift of of the church that we're able to gather together uh, corporately, that we're able to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and worship you And hear your word proclaimed and and, and worship through giving and enjoy the things that you created like fellowship, like laughter, uh, like conversation and fun, Lord, food, nourishment, God. Father, let us this morning focus on your word, on your son that gives us eternal nourishment, Father. Let our hearts be opened. Let us be receptive to the word of God. Give us hearts that are repentant, Lord, that will respond to your word through repentance, because of your goodness, Lord. God, let us have hearts that long for you, that want to seek after you, that want to chase and pursue you. Thank you, God. Allow me to be humble, Lord. Allow me this morning to take a back seat. It's all about you, and everything this morning and all that we do is to your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So today, we're going to be kicking off a new series, and we're still in the book of John. We're actually going to be in John chapter 7. And so this series, as you can see up there, is called Living Water. We just finished up the series that was called The Bread of Life. And a couple of things there, uh, before we get going, it probably feels like we do this every week, but we have to know why John wrote the book of John. We have to know his purpose for writing this entire gospel that we're going through. And so, hopefully, we probably have this memorized by now. But in John chapter 20, verse 30, 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And today in our text, we're going to be looking at some forms of unbelief. What does unbelief look like? What does it look like when Christ encounters unbelief? And to take a step back and how we got to chapter 7, John in chapter 1 reveals to us that Jesus is the Word of God. But he's not just the Word of God, he is God. He was there at the beginning, at creation. And then in chapter two through four, we went through the heart of the gospel series, and we learned that he was sent by the Father to die on a cross and atone for our sins. And in that series, we also see him do all sorts of miracles for all sorts of people during this time. He shows no partiality. And in chapter five, we learned that Jesus is the just judge and that he is completely obedient and abiding in the Father. He does nothing without the Father. And then in chapter six, where we just came through, the bread of life, we see that Jesus feeds 5,000 people and they immediately respond by wanting to make Jesus king. We learn that people love signs and miracles. Jesus goes on to tell them that he's the bread of life, that they need eternal food, not carnal food. And Alex that week explained to us that finite food is for finite life. That eating food on this earth is temporary. It will not sustain us eternally. That we must feast on eternal food. And So Jesus goes on to break this down. And last week Josh talked about how they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that that everyone that leaves him, they all leave him except the disciples who when asked say, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, up to this point, John has really wanted to make sure that we understand the divinity of Christ, that He is fully God, and is making it abundantly clear that if we truly believe in Him, we will have eternal life. We will become children of God, and it will influence everything that we would do. It will paint our entire perspective. And so now, here we are into chapter 7, and based off the other gospels, we actually know that there's a little bit of a gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 where Jesus is in Galilee, and he's doing a few different things. But what John really wants us to focus on after the bread of life is that he wants us to focus on this interaction that Jesus has surrounding the Feast of the Booths. So we're going to be in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to kick us off reading that now. It says in verse 1, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So starting out in verse 1, we can see two things. Jesus is currently in Galilee, which happens to be north of Judea on the map. And he has to be cautious about going down into Judea because the Jews, which this word here actually means the Jewish leaders or the religious elite, were seeking to kill him. And the reason that this is prominent is because in verse 2, we see that the Feast of Booths is at hand. It's about to take place. And this feast is actually one of several feasts that the Jews would celebrate. But there was actually three annual feasts known as the pilgrimage festivals where, the, where most of the Jews would actually visit Jerusalem down in Judea and partake in festivities of the feast for several days. And so with this feast being at hand, it, time is knocking. Jesus is gonna have to go down into Judea. And the Feast of Booths is particular, in this particular was a feast that they would actually um, erect little tabernacles and booths of leaves and branches. And they would live in them for a few days. All to remember the grace and provision that was extended to their ancestors when they were in the wilderness after Egypt and before coming into the land of Canaan. And so it's important that we understand the context of what's happening here when Jesus' brothers come and approach him. And so when Jesus' brothers show up on the scene, the word here for brothers actually means close family members. So it is possible that it's not just his direct brothers, but people close to him. But for the rest of the sermon, I'm just going to refer to them as his brothers, as scripture does. And when they show up on the scene, they knew that Jesus was going to have to go down to Judea. And they knew Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. They had probably spent a lot of quality time with Jesus. A lot of them had probably known Jesus their entire lives, 20, 30 years. And since they are this close to Jesus, they've been around the miracles that he did and probably even shared in some of the, the fame or reputation that was floating around about what Jesus could do and what he did. But yet we know that they didn't actually believe in him. We know that they didn't actually believe in him as the Son of God. But nevertheless, they probably still enjoyed being near him when the times were good. Which means that when Jesus is making people happy, when he's healing people, when he's feeding 5,000, when the crowds are gathering, when they're trying to rush and make him king, his his brothers probably don't mind being in close proximity. They probably don't mind being related to Jesus in this moment. However, now it's different. Everyone just forsook Jesus, everyone just left Jesus. And now we're at this time where Jesus' disciples having left him, except for the 12 or the 11, they were seeking after the carnal things. The disciples that had left him were seeking after carnal things and not eternal. And so now that we're in this time, not only are people not necessarily as excited about Jesus, even in Galilee, But we know that the Jews in Judea, the capital, were literally seeking to kill him. So his immediate family members are really no different than those that fell away from him in that when the heat gets turned up, they don't necessarily want to be close to Jesus anymore. They want Jesus when it's appealing and it's easy and it's beneficial to them in a worldly way. And they're actually nearsighted when it comes to what Jesus is doing with his ministry. They cannot even begin to understand or realize what God is doing when it comes to the overall timeline of redeeming his people. And the reason that they're thinking this way is that they have carnal minds. And so the first thing that I want you to write down today, if you're taking notes, is that carnal minds seek carnal things. And moreover on that, carnal minds cannot see eternal things. And so Jesus' brothers, not being able to see what God has planned for Christ, are only worried about themselves. They're only worried about what Jesus is going to do to help them in the immediate future. And so knowing this, they see an opportunity at hand, and they try to manipulate Jesus in only the way that their carnal minds can, through mockery and temptation. And so they tell him again in verse 3 Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They want Jesus to go up to the Feast of Booths for one of two reasons either he really is who he claims to be, and he can go up and perform miracles and establish himself as king of the Jews and be glorified which we know that they don't believe. Or he's a phony and he's gonna be killed. Or at the very least, probably disciplined in some way by the Jewish leaders and their problems are gonna go away. They're not gonna have that uncomfortable feeling that's coming with being close to Jesus right now. You see, the problem with the brothers right now is that they don't truly believe that they are speaking face to face with God. They don't truly believe that the man that's standing in front of them is fully God and fully man. This is just their brother, Jesus. I mean, they had known Jesus a long time. If you think about this with his brothers, they grew up with him. They may have even slept in the same room a majority of the time. They may may have been in the same bed. They could have been wearing Jesus' hand-me-down robes and his hand-me-down sandals. Like, this is just Jesus, their brother. This certainly isn't God. And so they begin to tempt and test him. In a similar way to how we see Satan tempt Jesus in the wilderness. They say, if you do these things, challenging him. If you actually do these things, show yourself to the world. If you can do this, show it. If you are really the son of God, prove it. And to them, this makes perfect sense. They are of this world with carnal minds living on finite timelines. If they were in Jesus' shoes and truly believed that they were the Messiah, they would go to Judea, to the capital city. To the capital city, which is the epicenter of of the religious elite and prosperity and education. And they would demonstrate their power and be worshipped. That is their worldly wisdom at play, their carnal minds. And so they continue to question Jesus and they say, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. No one works in secret if he he seeks to be known openly. Why are you not going up there, Jesus? And they probably can't even begin to wrap their head around why Jesus isn't doing this why he isn't demonstrating his power and authority everywhere he goes in a way that demands worship and surrender would the son of God really be fearful of the Jewish leaders would he really be hanging out in Galilee and keeping his power in check? what they don't know is that Jesus is not afraid what his brothers are asking him to do is not that outlandish it actually makes a ton of sense But his brothers believe that he is not really the Messiah. And that he can't really do what he says he can do. And they actually think that he is afraid to go to Judea. But what they don't realize here is that Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is not afraid of man. He's obedient to the Father. Jesus is perfectly meek. His power is completely under control here. And him remaining in Galilee for a season and being patient for the next season that's coming is actually all about his obedience to the Father. He does not have to put himself needlessly into harm's way because he already knows before the foundations of the world, he knows that he will be harmed. Jesus knows at this point that he will be murdered, that he will be beaten and tortured, that he's going to be hung on a cross down in Judea, which is all according to the plan of God that was predetermined before creation. But carnal minds think on carnal things. They don't realize what is at stake here. They aren't just asking Jesus to go up to Judea and start outwardly demonstrating his authority. What they are actually asking Jesus to do is step out of obedience and will to the Father. Discard the notion of the cross and leave humanity damned and dying, where darkness and death prevail. They're literally tempting and begging Jesus, trying to manipulate him and mock him to the point where it would eradicate their future path to eternal life. A path that is established by God's love and Christ's obedience on the cross. But they don't realize that they're asking this because they're carnally minded. God tells us in Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's thoughts are so much higher than ours. These men have no idea what they're asking. They have no idea what they're doing. Luckily, for us and for them, jesus does jesus is eternally minded jesus does not decide to give in to this temptation he doesn't decide to give in to his brothers but rather he responds with the truth and i want to take i want us to just take a moment and put yourself in those shoes not just the brothers but jesus's shoes jesus is fully human jesus grew up with these men jesus knows and loves these men jesus had rapport with them Jesus had walked his life out with them. And so when he has to come and tell them, like, you guys aren't getting it, I don't think he's just shooing them away. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. So Jesus here is is coming down to their level with a firm rebuke, speaking in truth. And going to to verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus immediately tells them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What Jesus is essentially saying is, pump the brakes. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're thinking with finite minds on a finite timeline. And if you're taking notes, I would want you to write that down today. The second thing I really want you to remember is that finite minds think on a finite timeline. Or maybe even better, finite lives think in a finite timeline. Jesus is going to travel to Judea. Jesus is going to be killed. Jesus is going to be worshipped. But the time for that has not yet come. They want him to go to Judea and either be killed or be worshipped. But what they don't know is that Jesus will eventually go to Judea and be killed and resurrected and be worshipped. They have no idea. They can't wrap their minds around the even possibility of what's going to happen. Even the twelve that were close to him couldn't understand what Jesus' plan was. And he tells them, your time is always here. Perfectly timed. Your time is always here. Their time is now. Without eternal life, this is the only life that carnal people are living. This life is their opportunity to get what they desire. They can travel to the feast, they can go down to Judea, they can even attract followers, they can seek riches and fame, all without fear of being killed. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear here that they are not like him. It's not Jesus' time to die. But spiritually, they are already dead and condemned. It says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you. Saying to the brothers, The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus wants his brothers who don't believe in him to understand that they are of the world. The world can't hate these brothers because they are the world. These brothers that don't believe in him have the same wicked hearts that the Jewish rulers have, that the world today has, that all of humanity has had. Their ways are not Christ's ways. Their thoughts are not Christ's thoughts and why does the world hate Christ because he reveals its darkness he reveals that its works are evil this idea of Christ being the light that reveals evil works relates well with the heart of the gospel where we talked about John 3:16 through 21 And John writing this, I think, is drawing this parallel between what Christ is saying here and what he's saying in John 3.16. So John 3.16-21, through 21, on 16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is one of the verses that we memorized as a church. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Christ is not here with his brothers right now to condemn them, but in order that they might be saved through him. They have no idea that this is what's happening. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. They are worldly. And here in 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. John's already revealed and painted this beautiful picture of what the gospel looks like a few chapters back. And so here in chapter 7, when Christ looks at them and reveals to them that you are of the world, that the world doesn't hate you but it hates me because I reveal its wickedness, we can truly understand the depths of what Christ is talking about here. We can truly realize that not only is he rebuking them because they're carnally minded and they're worldly and what they're asking him to do is wicked we also learn here that God has a plan for salvation to send his son to save the world a world that includes these very brothers that are tempting him that are sinning against him and a world that includes us a world that hates him It's important for us to remember, and Christ wanted to make sure his brothers got this, that the world hates Christ. The world is essentially Christ's adversary. The world that needs saving is not merely a victim. Try to track with me here. This world is not merely a victim between light and darkness. It's not merely a victim that's caught in the middle of a holy war between light and darkness. It's not lukewarm and gray. This world hates Christ. This world is a part of the darkness. This world hates God. But we know that God would love this world enough to send his son. We know that the very brothers that are rebuking him, God loves enough to go and die, to go and do what they're asking him to do in the place that they're asking him to do it, but on his timeline. God's ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. little do his brothers know that in this moment that God is working everything together for the good of his kingdom he has a master plan he is in total control of everything and pretty soon Jesus's brothers will have access to God the father through through Christ because he will go to judea he will die 3 days later he will rise triumphant over the death and the, over death and the grave and one day Christ shall return, and we, with some of his brothers, with some of the Jewish elite, will see him coming glorified. That is far and above a much better plan than the one that his brothers have tempted him with. But for now, Jesus plants the seeds of his word in the form of a soft rebuke and tells them to go to the festival. He's not going up yet especially in the manner that they want him to, because his time has not yet come. So go on to verse 9. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And while some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So now Jesus embarks upon his final journey out of Galilee towards Judea and goes up to the feast privately and humbly. And it says that there is much muttering about him among the people. He's the topic of conversation. People at the feast are looking for him. They're glancing their eyes around, side to side, and saying, man, do you know where Jesus is? No one's seen him. I know folks don't like Jesus, but but he's a good man. And some other people are piping up and saying, no, man, he's leading the people astray. If you think about the conversation that these people are having about Jesus in this context 2,000 years ago, it's very similar to the way that we talk about things, even in Christian circles, about the culture at hand. Hey, man, do you know where Jesus is? No, but I think he's a good man. No, he's not a good man. Well, don't say it too loud, because they'll come and persecute you if they want to kill him. Those who thought Jesus was a good man here didn't believe in him any more than the ones that didn't. They did not put their faith in Christ. And like always, their voices were the minority. They were unpopular. They're afraid of what might happen to them if they speak out or pursue the the truth. Because in verse 13, it told us, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. They're afraid of being ridiculed and outcast and even killed. They essentially allowed their fear to overwhelm their faith and further callous their hearts to the truth. But they should have allowed their faith to overcome their fear. And that's the third thing that I would like you to write down today, is that faith overcomes fear. Fear. How easy is it for us in this room to let fear overwhelm us? To have more fear of man and the pressures of society in the here and now than we have faith in Christ. When the pressure is on, when we're feeling the weight of darkness creeping in, we can struggle to believe in Jesus and naturally be like his brothers, where we want God to act now. Lord, help me get into that new job now. Jesus, please come back and save us now. Rushing the timeline, not understanding the eternal picture. But we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much on this, even though it's wicked, because we're actually in good company. We see this pattern all throughout scripture. This is our flesh, leaning into fear instead of faith. Men doubting God in their timeline. Abraham had enough faith in God's promise to make him the father of nations. God promised Abraham, I will make you the father of nations. You will have a son. Abraham had enough faith in that promise that it says that God accounted that faith to him for righteousness. And yet still, he came upon a season, he came upon a weak moment, where he decided to rush God's eternal timeline with Hagar. He had enough faith that accounted him to righteousness. We have had our faith, put our faith in Christ. redeemed and eternally secure and yet at times we allow fear to creep in and we make mistakes that go against the eternal timeline we're in good company and also when the pressure is on our faith will dwindle because of fear we won't stand for what is right because it's awkward we don't want to trust god fully because it might get uncomfortable for years i felt like lord i can trust you with everything Accept my bank account. Lord, I'll I'll go where you want me to go. I'll serve who you want me to serve. Don't touch my bank account. It might get uncomfortable if I don't have that paycheck coming in every week. When When the heat turns up, it's easy to let our faith dwindle. When people persecute us for what we believe, it's easy to not want to speak out. But again, we're in good company here with Peter, who on the night that Jesus was taken in a... Peter abandoned him, denied knowing him multiple times, which we should be able to relate to in a culture that will cancel anyone that disagrees with them. In a culture where we have to be very careful what we say or we will get canceled, it's easy to keep our faith hidden. But we cannot be afraid to speak Christ, we cannot be afraid to proclaim truths in love. We are salt and light. That is what we have titled our church. That is what we've said who we are. This is what we embody. And we must be willing to speak the truth of the gospel with a loving heart, a scripture-saturated mind, and an abundance of prayer. An abundance of prayer. There's no room for us to be afraid. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 through 8, it says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In verse 7, he reminds him, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God has not given us a spirit of fear But of power. This is one verse that I've taught Remy, working on scripture memorization, because I don't want her to be afraid of things that she has no business being afraid of. I want her to know now at three years old that the God who we worship, who we serve, who knew her before she was born, has not given her a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, or a sound mind. As children of the Most High, in the same way that I've taught Remy that, the Lord wants us to understand that. That the same power that rose Jesus from the grave now dwells in us. We are portable temples. And that we don't have to have a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And that there is no reason to allow fear to overwhelm our faith. There's no reason to allow fear to overwhelm our faith. But our faith should push out fear. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes here, as I begin to close this out. He's in Galilee because his own people want to kill him in Judea. Then his own brothers come to him and mock him and provoke him, challenging his glory, challenging who he is, the Son of the Most High. And then he goes to a feast where everyone is so fearful of the religious elite that they won't even mention his name out loud. A feast that is supposed to be reminding them about the grace and provision of God. The very person whose name they won't utter. But in the midst of this, Christ is not in despair. Because Christ's trust is not in man. He is fully God, fully man, and he is fully trusting and obeying the Father. He has faith in the Father.